If you have your Bibles, we're going to open to Luke chapter 15 to begin. We're going to turn to 2 Chronicles 33 here in just a moment. But I would like to read a parable before we move on uh, to the text that we're going to be uh, looking at more in depth this morning. I'm so grateful to be invited. I'm thankful for this church, and uh, this is the third time I've had the opportunity to stand in this pulpit, and I'm exceedingly thankful. It's one of my favorite churches to come to, and I know my girls have indicated that this is one of their favorite churches to come to as well. They've, they've really enjoyed the, the children's services as well. Well, here we are in Matthew, or, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 15, and it's a parable that you well know, but it's going to set the stage for us understanding Uh, the connection between what God tells us about himself in the New Testament as well as what he tells us about himself in the Old Testament. And so I'm going to read the parable of the prodigal son, that's usually what it's called, to us here this morning, and then we'll look at 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Here's what Jesus says in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons, The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up. And went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So, they began to celebrate. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you this morning for the power of your word. You've told us it is like a hammer that breaks the rock. 
Yet it's also that gentle word that coaxes us to believe what you say about yourself. And I trust today, Lord, I ask of you that you would help us to understand you better because we understand what your word says about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn back then. This morning, we're going to be looking at a passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. So that's in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 33, one of the historical books. And I want to tell you a very interesting story, one of my favorite Old Testament stories about a man named Manasseh. You may not know the name Manasseh. We generally know the great kings of Israel in the sense of David and Solomon, some of these big names. Uh, Manasseh can easily fall to the wayside, but God has a very powerful point to make in the life of this man named Manasseh. Now, there's a real particular reason I love this story, and that is because I see very much in Manasseh's life somewhat of a picture of my own life. And one of the things we're going to find out about Manasseh is that he messes up royally. And God is gracious. And so I've given away the story, but I think you're going to see as we walk through the story how powerful this story is to display some truth. You see, one question that very well may be on the minds of some people sitting here today, and certainly was on my mind when I came to Christ, was this particular question, will God actually forgive me? Not, will God forgive sin? That's a broad, general question. The question is, will God forgive you? You. Will God forgive you? Because I think there's something in our hearts that goes something like this. Yes, God can forgive that person. But me? Not me. Here's an article I found online. This lady wrote in, it was in a blog post, I think on a comment section. She said, in June of 1982, I, was found, I found out I was pregnant. I was 18 years old, two months away from college. My boyfriend was a backslidden Christian like me, and we chose an abortion because we didn't want to face our family and friends. We took the easy way out. After my abortion, I faced mental heartache, shed many tears, regretted the whole decision. To this day, I still get on my knees and cry, asking the Lord for his loving forgiveness because I know I was so wrong. I struggle a lot, wondering if God will ever give me a second chance. He is a loving God, and I believe with all my heart that he is God. Yet I always carry a conscience full of guilt. I feel like God has abandoned me, and I get so discouraged because of the nightmare of my past. Does God forgive me? Let me just mention a few things of my own past. I grew up in Davison, Michigan. Perhaps you're familiar with that. It's not too far from here. And I grew up going to a Christian school. When I was 18, however, I graduated from Christian school. And in my mind, I graduated from Christianity. The restraints that previously had been placed upon me were no longer upon me, and I could live the way I wanted to, and I did. And for about two full years, I lived as a heathen does, making up for all the lost time that I had lost in what I considered my earlier youth. 
And to this day, I'm not really sure why. I was working at General Motors as a line worker. And I was at work, and I just said, you know what? I should start reading my Bible. Let me just say, that's a very dangerous proposition for an unbeliever to do. But I began reading my Bible, and I was convinced that my whole trajectory of life was wrong. But it struck me rather quickly after that. This very central question of my life that dominated for some time, and it was, will God forgive me? I'm not... I, I, I'm not the guy who lived crazy life, didn't know the gospel, and then one day heard the gospel. I'm the guy who walked away, and then now I'm coming back, and will he accept me? Will he forgive me? And, and maybe that's a question that's on your heart, too, because here's the, here's the fact of the matter. You know the darkness of your heart better than anyone else around you. And when you look in the darkness of your heart, perhaps you ask the question, can God forgive me. And I am convinced that part of the reason God provides us the story of Manasseh is to answer that question. So what I want to do this morning is to walk through the life of this Old Testament character, this king, and I want us to take three glimpses of his life to see a full picture of God's unbound forgiveness. So let's take a first look at the glimpse of Manasseh's past. And the first thing we need to know about Manasseh is that he was a king. He was a king in Judah. Now, what that means is that Judah is the southern empire. They're the nation that actually had eight good kings. They had 12 bad kings, but they had eight good kings. And in fact, Manasseh's father was one of those good kings. Not only a good king, a great king. And one thing I'm fairly convinced of is that Manasseh would have written out an entire copy of the law for himself. In the book of Deuteronomy, it actually indicates that when Israel begins to have kings, one of the things that they must do is write out a copy of the law for themselves. Hezekiah, being the, the father of Manasseh, I'm sure would have, would have made this an imperative for his life. I mentioned that Hezekiah, Manasseh's father, was a godly king. In fact, the text tells us in 2 Kings 18.5, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Think about that for a moment. What does that mean? Who does that include? This text is telling us that Hezekiah was of such character. He loved the Lord and served him and followed him to such a degree that the text tells us that there were the, the kings of Judah, even David, didn't approach the relationship that Hezekiah had with the Lord. And in fact, I am fairly convinced, and it would take too much time to talk about it here this morning, but I'm fairly convinced that Hezekiah would have actually served with his son Manasseh for 15 years. You ask the question, well, why would they have served together? If you remember, we'll talk about this in just a few minutes. If you remember, Hezekiah was going to die. Do you remember that whole episode? Uh, the, the prophet of the Lord comes to him and says he's going to die and uh, says, get your house in order. It was a very common thing in those days that a king who knew that his time was going to come, would co-reign with the next king. And when we look at the chronological timetable, I'll simply say that Manasseh probably reigned for 15 years 
with his father Hezekiah, this godly king. Well, what did his father do? Oh, just look with me for just a few moments here at what his father did. Turn back with me in 2 Chronicles chapter 29. We'll just see this wonderful revival that's brought about during the time of Hezekiah. Because Hezekiah's father was an evil man, but Hezekiah loved the Lord. Notice in chapter 29 of 2 Chronicles, verse 2, it tells us this. He did, that is, Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. One of the things you'll, uh, if, if you were to read back, you'll note is that Hezekiah's father had nailed the temple door shut. Hezekiah comes and he opens the temple again. He brought in the priests and the Levites. He assembled them in the square on the east side and said, Listen to me, Levites. Consecrate yourselves. Consecrate the temple to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Remove all the devilement from the sanctuary. Our fathers were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord, our God, and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on him. They shut the doors of the portico and shut, put out the lamps. They did not burn incense or present, present any burnt offerings at the sanctuary to the God of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem, and he's made them an object of dread and horror and scorn, as you can see with your own eyes. This is why our fathers have fallen by the sword and why our sons and daughters and wives are in captivity. Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will be turned away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and serve him, to minister before him and to burn incense. So what does Hezekiah do? He opens the doors of the temple once more. He consecrates the priests. He gets the sacrifices happening once more. In fact, he goes beyond that. Look in chapter 30, verse 1. It says, Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah, and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. In fact, the Passover had not been celebrated for decades. This great celebration of what God had done for Israel had been forgotten. Hezekiah re reestablishes the celebration of the Passover. Verse 14 of this same chapter tells us, that they removed the altars in Jerusalem and cleared away the incense altars and threw them into the Kidron Valley. In summary, I'd put it this way. Hezekiah established a righteous government once more. God was to be the king over all Israel, and Hezekiah establishes such that God's worship is reestablished. And Manasseh, his son, sees this happen. Not only, however, did Manasseh see this revival taking place, he also saw the rewards of godly living. Look in chapter 30, verse 26. There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the days of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. This is the Passover and the celebration and the, the riches that God was bringing in. Remember, Solomon brought in the golden age in terms of the, uh, the, the growth and the the 
uh, the prosperity of Israel. And now this is saying that sort of prosperity is now happening within Israel. And there's celebration, there's joy throughout. And this is because they are faithful to God's covenant. Manasseh sees this. This leads in 31.1 to a spiritual revival. When all this had ended, the Israelites who were there went out to the towns of Judah, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. They destroyed the high places and the altars throughout Jerusalem and Benjamin and in Ephraim and Manasseh. After they destroyed all of them, the Israelites returned to their own towns and to their own property. So what did Hezekiah do? Hezekiah had destroyed the, the things in Jerusalem. But the people, because of the great revival, went out everywhere in the area and destroyed all of the Asherahs, all these uh, these things dedicated to the false gods. There's a s- true spiritual revival happening. And we know this is a true spiritual revival because we see in verses 6 to 10 that the people began to tithe, and they tithed more than they were required. <laughs> they were giving so much more than was needed that the problem arose, what do we do with this extra money that's coming in? What, what do we do with this? The nation prospered. We see that in 32, 27 to 29. Not only did he see God's power and the spiritual revival and the joy that came because of it. Notice the second thing that Manasseh saw. He saw his father's miraculous healing. Remember, I mentioned just a few moments ago that Hezekiah had been given a death sentence. And you remember as the great prophet comes to him and says, put your house in order for you will die. Hezekiah turns and he says, would you pray for me? And he does, and God says that he will live for an extra 15 years, and when a sign is given, that sign is that the sun retreats backwards rather than forwards, which doesn't happen. (laughs) This is a sign of God's involvement, God's intervention in nature itself. And I don't know if Manasseh was there watching this take place, but I know he heard about it. Everybody heard about it. And they saw the power of God. Manasseh saw the spiritual revival. He saw the power of God at work. Let me give you one more illustration of what Manasseh saw. The victory over Syria. Syria had come to the northern empire, just dominated them. And now they're coming, and they've surrounded Jerusalem. In fact, there are historical documents you can read about right now that, that have, have been discovered where the, where the Syrians talk about surrounding Jerusalem like somebody surrounding a birdcage. I mean, this, this city is going to fall, and they knew it. And yet what happens? He prays. He comes to the Lord, he comes to Isaiah, and there is redemption in not by means of the Israelites rising up and with their superior strength, but the text tells us that the angel of the Lord went out and he slayed thousands upon thousands of the enemy. What's fascinating is that historical document I was talking about just a moment ago that talked about how they were surrounding Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. He doesn't finish what happens after that. I think there's a reason for that, because it's not a great victory. Just imagine with me that you were surrounded in Jerusalem as Manasseh must have been. You look out on the fields of those enemies that have been slain, but not by your sword. 
This is a mighty God. So if I had to pause here and I had to say, now, Hezekiah passes away, Manasseh takes the, the throne, He's seen the great revival and the joy that comes from it. He's seen uh, or at least heard about what has happened in his father's life, a recovery from illness, the sun dial moving back. He's seen with his own eyes the deliverance of God for the people of Israel in just a majestic and inexplicable way. How then would Manasseh live? If you had to write the story, what would happen? But that's not what happens. Let's look now at a second glimpse. So the first glimpse is Manasseh's past. Let's take a second glimpse, a glimpse of Manasseh's sin. A glimpse of Manasseh's sin. Notice with me in chapter 33. It says this in verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. Now, I think that's because, remember a moment ago I told you, I think he reigns with his father for 15 years. So he begins that when he's 12 years old. And he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out from before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He erected the altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord of which the Lord had said, my name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his sons in the fire of the valley of, the, of Ben-Hinnom, practiced sorcery, divi divination, witchcraft, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved image he had made and put it in God's temple. Notice verse 9, but Manasseh led Ju Judah, verse 9, Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. So here's a second glimpse of Manasseh's life. I would say this, he's arguably the worst king in Judah's history, the southern kingdom arguably the worst king in Judah's history. He begins by reversing his father's reforms. Remember, his father came in and destroyed all the Asherah poles and all the things dedicated to foreign gods. Manasseh begins reigning, and he erects all of these once more. He practices all kinds of spiritual abominations. It says he worshipped all the hosts of heaven. Verse 6, though, tells us he burned his sons in the valley of Hinnom. I can't describe to you, I've read articles about what this ancient practice would look like. I, I would not describe to you what would take place, but it, it, uh, it's enough to simply say they would take a living infant and put them in the arms of a burning metal image and allow them to cry out and burn. And this is what this man does. To the degree that the, that the biblical text in the book of Kings says this, that such an action did not even enter into God's mind. Now the point there is not that God was not aware that people would do this, but it's really basically saying, this is such an evil that it should be even be beyond humanity. Humans made in God's image should never be able to even to do this. This is how 
horrific this is. And here is this man not burning one son, but it indicates his children to this idol. He erects idols within the temple of the Lord. He indulges the demonic world with medium, sorcerers, wisdom, wizards, fortune tellers, all the rest. And I think one of the most critical things to understand here is this. It says of him, he led the people of Israel to be worse than the people who were there previously. Now, why that's significant is because you'll remember that when God gave the land to Abraham, he said, now I've given you this land, but you may not have it for 420 years because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. The point is that God didn't willy-nilly just say, you know, we're going to wipe these people out and you can take their land. Actually, the text tells us that these people were so evil and the things that they were doing were so vile that judgment was ripe. It had to come. And here's what the text saying. meant Manasseh, led the people to such evil that they were worse than the people God had driven out of the land. The kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, were to lead in righteousness, and he led in the exact opposite direction. 2 Kings 21.16 says this of Manasseh, <clears throat> Moreover, Manasseh shed so much innocent blood that he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other, beside his sin wherewith he made Judah to sin, and doing that which is evil in the sight of the Lord. Whose blood do you think he shed? Well, we've got a really good clue. And that is that during the reign of Manasseh, we really only know of one major prophet, and that's Isaiah. We know of really no other prophets during this incredibly long reign. Why might that be? Well, somebody's filling the uh, streets of Jerusalem with blood. Anybody who's righteous, anyone who's standing against him, he's killing righteous people. In fact, you've probably read in Hebrews chapter 11 that phrase within the, the hall of faith where it says that some were sawn asunder. Uh, that it's talking about the, the righteous people of Israel's past. That's actually, according to Jewish history, a uh, reference to Isaiah, who fleeing from Manasseh hid in a tree, and Manasseh had the tree cut down while Isaiah was inside. That's who we're talking about here, this Manasseh. You almost can't paint a picture that's more disturbing than having the history and heritage that Manasseh had and turning so despitefully against it and living in such an ungodly way. Manasseh had no excuse. We've looked at two glimpses of Manasseh's life, a glimpse of his past. We've now taken a glimpse of his sin. Let's take a third glimpse, though, a glimpse of Manasseh's repentance. Look down with me in verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh. Now, let me just pause there and simply say that that's grace in itself. <laughs> that, that God didn't send lightning, that God didn't send an army, that God didn't destroy him immediately, but God spoke to him. He used his word by means of prophets, 
by means of the scripture, I'm sure, he spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. If you were God, and I think this is one of the really good reasons none of us are, but if any of us were God, I don't even think we'd give the grace to speak to such a one. He knows judgment is ripe, but God speaks to him. And he doesn't listen. So then what would you do? Probably not what God does. Notice what God then goes on to do. So verse 11. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Now there's a a bit of debate exactly how this would take place whether it's in the nose or whether it's in the cheek. It's clearly within the face. And often what they would do when they would take captives is that they would take a hook just like a fish and put it either in the nose or within the cheek and then attach that to the horse or whatever else that they were going to, Babylon or Assyria, and, uh, and they would lead them in that procession. It's designed to be incredibly embarrassing for those who've been captured in such a way. So here's this man humbled. He was the king in in, in Judah. Now humbled, being led in this way. Verse 12, notice. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Let's just again pause there. How, how should God respond to such a one like this? I mean, he's in the most deplorable situation. The only reason he's calling to God is because he's in this bad situation. He's in the gutter. He's got no other hope. So now he's going to call God? Psh, not now. I'm not going to listen. But notice the shocking nature of what comes next. Verse 13. And when he prayed to him, The Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened. The Lord was moved by his entreaty. The idea here is the Lord heard and he acted. He he positively heard the cry of this man. He was moved by that. And he listened to his plea, and so he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Now, a moment ago, I titled this third glimpse as Manasseh's repentance. What we might be uh, initially thinking is, well, this is one of those temporary things, right? He's in a bad situation. He cries out to God because he's got no other one. But you know, God gets him out of it, but he's just going to go back to the way he was. But the text actually tells us that, there, that he becomes a new man. Notice what he does in verse 15, or I'm sorry, verse 14. Afterward, he re- rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David, west of the Gihon Spring in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate, and he encircled the hill of Ophel. He also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah. So he defends the land, but notice the spiritual side of things in verse 15. 
he got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. The other events of Manasseh's reign, including his prayer to his God and the words the seers spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, are written in the annals of the kings of Israel. His prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty, as well as all his sins and unfaithfulness, and the sites where he built high places and set up Asherah poles and idols, before he humbled himself, all are written in the records of the seers. I think that one little phrase right there tells us an incredible amount. It tells me this. There were two steps, or two stages in Manasseh's life. There was the before repentance and the after repentance. And the historian, as he writes about him, he says, and all the things he did before he humbled himself. And then there were the things he did after he humbled himself. Is that not redemption, friends? Is that not conversion? Do you not have a story? in which if you were saved at an older age, you say, but that was me, and this is me, and this is the turning point. Before I humbled myself, here's how I was. And after I humbled myself, here's how I am. So what do we learn in the life of Manasseh? What can we take away from this powerful narrative? I think the first thing I learn as I look at Manasseh's life is this full picture of God's forgiveness of Manasseh teaches me that God's grace can reach all men. God's grace can reach all men. There may be somebody today you're thinking of. You've given up hope for them. You think, not them. I mean, they, they used to come to this church. Uh, I knew them in high school, and, and they had believed at one time, it seemed, but they've gone the opposite way. I've even seen what they're like on Facebook. I know what their life is like. Not them. Oh, friend, look at Manasseh. Do you think any of the righteous people in Israel were thinking, oh, God's going to humble Manasseh, and he's going to turn, and he's going to repent, and he's going to be a great king? None of them thought that. They thought, I can't wait till this guy dies because there's no hope with this guy. And yet, God forgave. Friend, if you have someone today that you've stopped praying for, start praying again. If God can do it in Manasseh's life, could he not do it in theirs? You see, this passage teaches us that God's forgiveness is beyond what we can imagine. Same thing, I think, in, the, in 1 Timothy. Paul talks about his own life, and he says, And God showed his grace to me, a persecutor of the church, so that all men would know the extent of God's love and God's grace. That's why God gave us the story of Manasseh. But perhaps it's actually personal. Perhaps it's you today that you've thought for a long time that God can forgive many people, but not what you've done. You've sinned too greatly. Friend, have you sinned in the way Manasseh did? 
And even if you have, Look what God did for Manasseh. He cried out to him and you say, well, no, because I'm in the midst of a pit. I'm in the midst of trouble that I got myself into and God won't listen to my prayer because I got myself here. But look at the pit Manasseh was in and, God, and he prayed and God was moved by his prayer. God will be moved by your prayer. He will. And I think this is the third point that is so important to understand. We, we are so confused about who God is. We are convinced that God is a judging God, that he just cannot wait to judge us. But everywhere, when God defines himself, what does he say about himself? I am full of steadfast love. I am slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. I will not always judge. I mean, this is how God defines himself. Do you remember when Moses says to the Lord, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I will make my goodness pass before you. Do you know what the glory of the Lord is? It's his goodness. He is good and he wants to forgive. That's what he's telling us. And that's why I read the parable of the prodigal son. I can't tell you how freeing that parable was because I remember sitting at work, reading my Bible, and thinking, I don't think God can forgive me. But here's what I'll do. I'll go to the Lord and I'll say, I want to be your servant. I know, I can't be your son, but I can be your servant. And then I remember reading that passage. And I was the prodigal. I said the same thing. And he said, here comes my son. Robe him. I want to forgive. And oh friend, today, if you say in your heart, not me, he says, yes, you. He wants to forgive. This is who our God is. And he is a merciful, loving God. You know, about a year ago, I came and I preached on a parable, the parable of the unforgiving servant, and there we looked at the fact that our, our debt was 10,000 talents. You may remember that, perhaps you don't. But God is a 10,000 talent forgiver. He's taken that sin and he's put it on his son, and he's willing to forgive you. He's willing to forgive all who repent and humble themselves. Oh, Father in heaven, I thank you that today we have hope. Everyone here within the hearing of my voice who hears your spirit calling to them, who desires to repent, can. You've told us that. And you will run to them and you will clothe them with your grace and your kindness. You will make them your child because that is who you are. Father, your scriptures never tell us that you have to be worked up into forgiving. Oh, you tell us you're slow to anger. And that, you're, uh, that when uh, your anger is worked up because we've done things, Father, you, you talk about that, but it is so natural for you to forgive and to love. That's how you've defined yourself. And we thank you for that this morning. And I pray today that those within the hearing of my voice, perhaps someone who has not trusted in your son, they've not believed, I pray that they would see the extent of your forgiveness offered today. I pray for others who 
have struggled with the thought of forgiveness, whether you could forgive them, remind them of Manasseh, remind them of Paul, remind them of your great grace, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.